0: You're listening to KDVS Davis. Whenever I'm in Davis, I always listen to 90.3 FM. Great station, great people listening. They're the greatest, believe me. And I'm telling you, I love it. Melania loves it. Ivanka loves it. Eric loves it. Donald Jr., I have no idea. This is former Vice President Al Gore. The previous person, the only time I've ever heard him tell the truth, inconvenient or not, is what he just said. 90.3 FM KDVS really is the best, and I mean it. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight For my monster From his slab Began to rise And suddenly To my surprise He did the match. He did the monster, match. the monster match It was a graveyard smash He did the match. It got on in a flash He did the match. He did the monster match From my laboratory In the castle east To the master bedroom At the vampire's feast The goose all came from their humble you know, I have to say that Mr. Millen and I never seem to tire of um, taking advantage of any opportunity to play Boris Bobby Pickett's classic, The Monster Mash. It's of course been a Halloween staple around here, and it provides a segue for us today to talk about the fact that uh, I did promise on this show a month or so ago uh, that we would get around to talking about the 200th anniversary of the publishing of Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. Frankenstein, at least the Boris Karloff version, has become uh, just, just a fixture in our culture, and of late, a metaphor, I think it's fair to say, for what has come out of Silicon Valley we'll have more to say about that again on today's program before we're done. But I did promise a book report on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and 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 I guess I must uh, I must deliver it. I want to start off by saying that it's not necessarily the worst piece of fiction I've ever read, although I hasten to add it certainly might be. Now, I'll grant you it's a fascinating uh fascinating idea, this idea of a uh of a scientist, mad or otherwise, uh, getting together and creating life from inanimate matter, the whole concept opens up so many so many interesting so many interesting avenues of thought that it you know it's captivated the world for two centuries. The book was evidently a hit coming out of the gate, to which I would add, in spite of the fact that it stinks. My first criticism of the book would come uh, from uh, Mark Twain's criticism of James Fenimore Cooper when he described how in a Cooper novel all the characters uh, seem to sound the same. Everybody in Frankenstein, when they open their mouth up, including the monster, sounds the same. They're using very flowery prose to describe every nuance of their feeling using big, ponderous words that frankly makes for some pretty slow going in the reading. And as far as the plot goes, it's got more holes than a block of Swiss cheese. And just to side of a few of the things that I object to, of, of the many things, when young scholar Victor Frankenstein manages to figure out how to create life from non-life, he somehow manages to throw together this specimen that's much larger than an average person and much tougher. Where he got the parts goes undescribed. And, in addition, sad to note, in the book, there is no Igor. No, Victor Frankenstein creates this monster, animates him, and then immediately gets depressed about it and takes to the bed with a fever and remains there for weeks while the monster is free to wander out the back door. Now, having been given no training in what it means to be a being, uh, the monster has a bit of a rough go for quite a while. But believe it or not, at some point he manages to stumble through the woods finds some sort of woodshed attached to a cottage out in the woods, inhabited by a family. And then by peering through a chink in the wall and listening to their discussions, he learns how to speak French and a great deal about history, government, metaphysics, etc., world affairs. The monster at one point stumbles upon books including Plutarch's Lives, which, which he teaches himself to read. While wandering through the countryside, he stumbles upon Wouldn't You Know It? The manuscript that Victor Frankenstein apparently left out in the woods it it is how it is he made the monster in the first place. The monster reads this and is very upset. Then immediately comes upon Victor Frankenstein's younger brother and decides, since he's kind of mad at his creator, to kill the brother. After chasing the now-recovered Victor Frankenstein up onto a glacier in the Alps and demanding that he make him a mate, he then manages to track him through subterfuges that are not outlined very well, uh, or not outlined at all, to the Orkney Islands of Scotland, where, after Frankenstein denies that he's going to actually make him that mate, which he started and then gives up on, the monster vows revenge. Waits gets married a few months later and then promptly kills his bride. I think he winds up killing his, his brother, his best friend, a servant in the house, his wife, and his father dies of grief. The monster is a one-entity wrecking crew of the Frankenstein family at which point Victor tracks him up into the Arctic, (laughs) where where the both of them manage to encounter a whaling ship locked in the ice. Luckily for the reader, the broken-hearted scientist soon dies, and the monster vows to go commit suicide. Frankly, it all came not a minute too soon. Now, for the sake of completeness, I would like to give you some execrable quotes from this novel. Unfortunately, on a cold night a couple of weeks back, I made the executive decision that the novel Frankenstein might make some excellent kindling. And although, as a general rule, I don't favor book burning, um, I did put this one up in smoke. Anyway, uh, my book report is a thumbs down. But in spite of all that, I do remain a fan of Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein. It's alive! Anyway, let's return to the metaphor of Frankenstein. That of the output of Silicon Valley. i like to quote from an article in New York Magazine titled, An Apology for the Internet from the People Who Built It. To quote from this piece about our modern Frankenstein's monster. Something has gone wrong with the internet. Even Mark Zuckerberg knows it. Testifying before Congress, the Facebook CEO ticked off a list of everything his platform has screwed up from fake news and foreign meddling in the 2016 election to hate speech and data privacy. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, he confessed. Then he added the words everybody was waiting for. I'm sorry. There have always been outsiders who criticize the tech industry, even if their concerns have been drowned out by the oohs and ahs of consumers, investors, and journalists. But today... The most dire warnings are coming from the heart of Silicon Valley itself. The man who oversaw the creation of the original iPhone believes the device he helped build is too addictive. The inventor of the World Wide Web fears his creation is being weaponized. Even Sean Parker, Facebook's first president, has blasted social media as as a dangerous form of psychological manipulation. He lamented recently, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. To understand what went wrong, how the Silicon Valley dreams of building a networking utopia turned into a globalized strip mall casino overrun by pop-up ads and cyber bullies, and Vladimir Putin, we spoke to more than a dozen architects of our digital present. If the tech industry likes to assume the trappings of a religion, complete with a quasi-messianic story of progress, the Church of Tech is now giving rise to a new sect of apostates feverishly confessing their own sins. And the internet's original sin, as these programmers, investors, and CEOs make clear, was its business model. To keep the internet free while becoming richer faster than anyone in history, the technologic elite needed something to attract billions of users to the ads they were selling. And that something, it turns out, was outrage. As Jaron Lanier, a pioneer in virtual reality, points out, anger is the emotion most effective at driving quote, engagement, unquote, which also makes it, in a market for attention, the most profitable one. By creating a self-perpetuating loop of shock and recrimination, social media further polarized what had already seemed during the Obama years an impossibly and irredeemably polarized country. The advertising model of the Internet was different from anything that came before. Whatever you might say about broadcast advertising, it drew you into a kind of community, even if it was a community of consumers. The culture of the social media era, by contrast, doesn't draw you anywhere. It meets you exactly where you are with your preferences and prejudices, at least as best an algorithm can intuit them. Microtargeting is nothing more than a fancy term for social atomization a business logic that promises community while promoting its opposite. Why over the past year has Silicon Valley begun to regret the fundamental elements of its own success? The obvious answer is November 8, 2016. Donald Trump was elected in no small part by the internet itself. Twitter served as his unprecedented direct mail style megaphone. Google helped pro-Trump forces target users most susceptible to crass Islamophobia. The digital clubhouse of Reddit and 4chan served as a breeding ground for the alt-right, and Facebook became the weapon of choice for Russian trolls and data scrapers like Cambridge Analytics. Instead of producing a techno-utopia, the Internet suddenly seemed as much a threat to its creator class as it had previously been their herald. What we're left with... Our incredibly divided populations of resentful users now joined in their collective outrage by Silicon Valley visionaries no longer in control of the platforms they built. The unregulated quasi-autonomous imperial scale of the big tech companies multiplies any rational fears about them and also makes it harder to figure out an effective remedy. Could a subscription model reorient the Internet's incentives? Valuing user experience over ad-driven outrage? Could smart regulations provide greater data security? Or should we break up these new monopolies entirely in the hope that fostering more competition would give consumers more options? Silicon Valley, as it turns out, won't save the world. But those who built the internet have provided us with a clear and disturbing account of why everything went so wrong and how the technology they created has been used to undermine the very aspects of a free society that made that technology possible in the first place. Pretty hard hitting. I think I'll talk a bit about some of the 15 steps uh, they mentioned and how things went wrong. The first was that it started with good hippie intentions. They note the Silicon Valley dream was born of the counterculture. A generation of computer programmers and designers flooded the Bay Area's tech scene in the 1970s and 1980s, embracing new technology as a tool to transform the world for good. Quoting from Antonio Garcia Martinez, who says, I'm old enough to remember the early days of the Internet. A lot of the save the world stuff comes from the origins in the valley. The hippie flower children dropped out and Silicon Valley was the alternative to mainstream industrial life. Steve Jobs would have never gotten a job at IBM. The original internet was built by super geeky engineers who didn't fully understand the commercial implications of it. They could muck around and it didn't matter. Step two was they mixed in capitalism on steroids. They note that to transform the world you first need to take it over. The planetary scale and power envisioned by Silicon Valley's early hippies turned out to be as well suited for making money as they were for saving the world said Jaron Lanier. We disrupted absolutely everything. Politics, finance, education, media, family relationships, romantic relationships. We won. We just totally won. But then, having won, we have no sense of balance or modesty or graciousness. We're still acting as if we're in trouble and we have to defend ourselves. So we kind of turned into a-holes, you know? Step three, the arrival of Wall Streeters didn't help. They note that just as facebook became the first overnight social media success the stock market crashed sending money-minded investors westward toward the tech industry before long a handful of companies had created a virtual monopoly in digital life quoting from ellen pow who said it all goes back to facebook it was a success so quickly and was so admired that it changed the culture. It went from, I'm going to improve people's lives to I'm going to build this product that everybody uses so I can make a lot of money. Then Google went public, and all of a sudden you have these instant billionaires. No longer did you have to toll for decades. So in 2008, when the markets crashed, all these people from Wall Street who were motivated by money ended up coming out to Silicon Valley and going into tech. That's when values shifted even more. Step four, we paid a high price for keeping it free. Magazine notes, to avoid charging for the internet while becoming fabulously rich at the same time, Silicon Valley turned to digital advertising. But to sell ads that target individual users, you need to grow a big audience and use advanced technology to gather reams of personal data that will enable you to reach them efficiently. They quote from a Dan McComas who says, the incentive strategy is simply growth at all costs. I can tell you that from the inside, the board never asks about revenue. They honestly don't care, and they said as much. They're only asking about growth. When I was at Reddit, there was never a conversation at any board meeting about the users or things that were going on that were bad or potential dangers. Quoting Jason Lanier, What started out as advertising morphed into continuous behavioral modification on a mass basis, with everyone under surveillance by their devices and receiving calculated stimulus to modify them. It's a horrible thing that was foreseen by science fiction writers. It's straight out of Philip K. Dick or 1984. Despite all the warnings, we just walked right into it and created mass behavior modification regimes out of our digital networks. We did it from the desire to be both cool socialists and cool libertarians at the same time. Said Ethan Zuckerman, as soon as you're saying, I need to put you under surveillance so I can figure out what you want and meet your needs better, you really have to ask yourself the question, am I in the right business? Am I doing this the right way? Step five was everything was designed to be really, really addictive. Noted the piece, the social media giants became attention merchants, bent on hooking users no matter the consequences. Engagement was the euphemism for the metric, but in practice, it evolved into an unprecedented machine for behavior modification. Said Tristan Harris, that blue Facebook icon on your home screen is really good at creating an unconscious habit that people have a hard time extinguishing. People don't see the way that their minds are being manipulated by addiction. Facebook has become the largest civilization scale mind control machine that the world has ever seen. Said Sandy Parakilas, Facebook is a fundamentally addictive product that is designed to capture as much of your attention as possible without any regard for the consequences. Tech addiction has a negative impact on your health and on your children's health. It enables bad actors to do new bad things from electoral meddling to sex trafficking. It increases narcissism and people's desire to be famous on Instagram. And all these consequences ladder up to the business model of getting people to use the product as much as possible through addictive, intentional design tactics, and then monetizing their users' attention through advertising. Holy mackerel, Mr. McMillan. It's alive! They noted in step six, it it worked at first almost too well. They note that none of the companies hid their plans or lied about how their money was made. But as users became deeply enmeshed in the incredibly addictive web of surveillance, the leading digital platforms became wildly popular. Said Roger McNamee, if you go back to the early days of propaganda theory, Edward Bernays had a hypothesis that to implant an idea and to make it universally acceptable, you needed to have the same message appearing in every medium all the time for a really long period of time. The notion was it could only be done by a government. Then... Facebook came along, and it had this ability to persuade every single user. Instead of being a broadcast model, it was now 2.2 billion individualized channels. It was the most effective product ever created to revolve around human emotions. Step 7 of the 15 of how things went wrong was that no one with Silicon Valley was now held accountable, which they note in step 8 took place even as social networks became dangerous and toxic. Magazine notes that with companies scaling at unprecedented rates, user security took a backseat to growth and engagement. Resources went to selling ads, not protecting users. Said Guillaume Chaslot, or Chaslow I'm not sure which it is, as an engineer at Google, I would see something weird and propose a solution to management. But just noticing the problem was hurting the business model. So they would say, okay, but is it really a problem? They trusted the structure. I was told, don't worry, we have the best people working on it. It should be fine. Step nine, even as they invaded our privacy, they note the more features Facebook and other platforms added, the more data users willingly, if unwittingly, released to them and the data brokers who power digital advertising. And then step 10, 2016. He notes the election of Donald Trump and the triumph of Brexit Two campaigns, powered in large part by social media, demonstrated to tech insiders that connecting the world, at least via an advertising surveillance scheme, doesn't necessarily lead to that hippie utopia. Said Lanier, a lot of that rhetoric of Silicon Valley that had a utopian ring about creating meaningful communities where everyone's creative and people collaborate, I was one of the first authors on some of that rhetoric a long time ago, so it kind of stings for me to see it misused. I used to talk about how virtual reality could be a tool for empathy. Then I see Mark Zuckerberg talking about how VR could be a tool for empathy while being profoundly non-empathetic, using VR to tour Puerto Rico after the hurricane. Step 11 notes that employees are starting to revolt. Step 12 notes that to fix it, we'll need a new business model. Noting that if the problem is in the way Silicon Valley makes money, it's going to have to make money a different way, maybe by trying something radical and new, like... Charging users for goods and services. Andy, said Sandy Parakelis, they're going to have to change their business models quite dramatically. They say they want to make time well spent the focus of their product, but they have no incentive to do that. Nor have they created a metric by which they would measure that. But if Facebook charged a subscription instead of relying on advertising, then people would use it less and Facebook would still make money. It would be equally profitable and more beneficial to society. In fact, if you charge users a few dollars a month, you would equal the revenue Facebook gets from advertising. It's not inconceivable that a large percentage of their user base would be willing to pay a few dollars a month. Step 13 notes that some tough regulations may be around the corner, but notes that in step 14 that maybe nothing's going to change noting that the scariest possibility is that nothing can be done, that the behemoths of the new Internet are too rich, too powerful, and too addictive for anyone to fix. Unless, as they note in step 15, that at the very least some new people are in charge. Said Ellen Powell, I've urged Facebook to bring in people who are not part of a homogeneous majority to their executive team. To every product team, to every strategy discussion, the people who are there now clearly don't understand the impact of their platforms and the nature of the problem. You need people who are living the problem to clarify the extent of it and help solve it. The article winds up with a few other quotes from miscellaneous tech developers like Pierre Omidyar, founder of eBay, who said, let's build a comprehensive database of highly personal targeting info and sell secret ads with zero public scrutiny. What could go wrong? Said Tim Cook, CEO of Apple. I don't have a kid, but I have a nephew that I put some boundaries on. There's some things I won't allow. I don't want them on a social network. And Tony Fidel, known as one of the founders of the iPod, was quoted as saying, I wake up in cold sweats every so often thinking, what did we bring to the world? Anyway, Radio Parallax now operates out of Silicon Valley. We are going to stay on this topic. We do find it to be weird being stuck in the East Bay area, noting the, uh, the press that the tech industry gets around here is, is pretty much puff piece uh, after puff piece. Writing in the Washington Post, Tony Rahm and Craig Timberg have noted that Cambridge Analytica has now shut down amid scandal over its data use. The article notes that the controversial tactics of Cambridge Analytica, whose former vice president, Republican strategist Steve Bannon, later worked for Trump's campaign and in the White House, first came to light in March in news reports that it had amassed data from tens of millions of Americans through a Facebook quiz. Bannon, who later left the company and the White House, did not respond to requests for comment. They conclude by reviewing the fact that Cambridge Analytica was born as an American offshoot of London-based SCL group whose affiliates had worked in campaigns around the world, including Kenya, Nigeria, and India, where, to my understanding, uh, they affected elections. And finally, there's this. Dan Walters, writing in the Sacramento Bee, notes that California was in a bragging mode last week because the state's economy has, has climbed in global ranking to fifth place behind only the United States as a whole, China, Japan, and Germany. It's a remarkable factoid, certainly, that one American state generated so much economic production, $2.7 trillion that year, that it could rank among global leaders. Think about it. That puts California outproducing Russia, and even India, which has 32 times as many people. California reportedly moved into fifth place by slipping past Great Britain, which has 63 million people. After previously topping France, with 65 million and Italy of, and with 61 million. That's if any of these stats are to be believed. They're probably reasonably accurate. And of course, the question underlying all this is how much of that comes from the tech industry? I imagine quite a bit. But doggone it, we're out of time. This program was produced by Mr. Edward McMillan. I am your faithful host, Douglas Everett. Radio Parallax notes that in its 16 year history, we have never never collected your data and sold it to third parties. We do know that, like the hippie founders of what has become the current tech behemoth of Silicon Valley, we'd like to think that we're making the world a better place. And while part of us certainly hopes you would at some point become, in a way, addicted to this program, but we try to addict you by just being plain interesting, not by using psychological tricks. And I have to laugh when I say that as I think of a a long-forgotten skit that was once on Saturday Night Live, which referred to a stage hypnotist's show. When a paying patron was asked for a review, he said, It was great, better than cats. I'm going back to see it again and again. And as further proof, they cited the review by Rex Reed in the New York Post, wherein he said, it was great, better than cats. I'm going back to see it again and again. (laughs) Anyway, Radio Parallax, at least as good as cats, and we hope you come back to hear it again and again. We'll see you soon.